We should get one of those proper like switchboard things where you can like a DJ. Oh yeah. Where you can like do that annoying thing that DJs do where they like tweak the levels a million times so it looks like they're doing something. Yeah. I went to electric music or whatever you call it, electronic music festival in um, France <laughs> and it was like that. I was like, this is not, you're just, you're just putting on tape what you pre done and everyone's going, I can't believe I'm seeing them live. Yeah, and every once in a while, I, look, I say this, I know nothing about DJing. It might be, in fact, very difficult. And maybe occasionally you press a button that goes, re, 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 remix. Yeah, exactly. No, but it's, not, it's not hard. I think you're full of shit if you're a DJ. Yeah, destroy them. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. The NHS over here is Daniel. Ooh, uh, Obamacare! Bloody Obamacare try, trying to trying to make me healthy. No, is Abby. <laughs> so this is just a note that here at Aston University we have started up a new MA English program. It's particularly well suited for teachers of English. So if you are a teacher in the Greater Midlands area, please check out our master's program at Aston, and maybe Daniel and I will teach you. What a horrifying thought! I've got a correction. I just remembered. I said that. M- Michael Winner directed The Innocents. He didn't. There's a 1971 prequel to Turn of the Screw, directed by Michael Winner, about Peter Quint, starring uh, that guy that got drunk a lot. That you Oliver got. Reed. Oliver Reed, yeah. I can't remember what it's called now, but I was wrong. By, I conflated the two in the previous episode. Here's, here's my correction. I like that you said that bloke who was drunk a lot, and out of all the actors in the 70s, I picked up the one immediately. Yeah, well, it's got to be Oliver Reed, hasn't it? He died winning a drinking contest. Oh, that's, that's how I want to go. Yeah. It could have easily been Peter O'Toole. Yeah, but he wouldn't play Peter Quinn, would he? he he's more like it's by Miles. I, I think he yeah. has the malice in him. <laughs> no. I think he could do no, it. No, no, he's, he's too fey. The 70s were full of dudes like that. Um, What's his name? Richard Harris. Is the other one. There we go. He's just so dusty. Yeah. He's a he dusty, dusty daddy. He's like a ghost, isn't he? <laughs> not, maybe not a quint. Uh, okay, that's my correction. Uh, so we do have one letter. This is a letter from Anna. Email um, letter. Uh, <laughs> hi, Abby and Daniel. I'm always second. I don't know what's going on there. I have alphabetical. Just must be it. Uh, I have listened to every episode so far and I've loved all of them but haven't written in before, as I am quite shy. Yeah, oh. we're going to give you both barrels now, so... <laughs> no, we are not. <laughs> you know, you're going to rue the day. Write in more. Yeah. This is very sweet. I work in a school and have recommended your podcast to some GCSE students who are studying A Christmas Carol, which may have contributed to the spike in the amount of listens for that episode. Sorry, Daniel, it's for a good cause. That proves that she listens to it, doesn't it? Because she knows that I, in a previous episode, objected to people listening to that episode. It's not just it's not just a stooge. Um, it's a real listener, everybody. My recommendations for further texts are heavily Shakespeare based. I hope you don't mind. No, I don't. I, I love Shakespeare. One, Macbeth. We have thought about doing this for a long time. This is on our long list. Don't you worry. Two, Romeo and Juliet. Don't know it. Okay. Well, 
I'm going to read a little description here. My GCSE teachers bludgeon this to death brutally. <laughs> <laughs> and I now absolutely hate it. And you two are the only people who I think could make it interesting again. Wow. Okay. High praise. Okay. Uh, it's nice to get all the tragedies in, isn't it? Yeah, and we had somebody else request Romeo and Juliet, yeah. so that's clearly edging ahead. I don't know, we have a Valentine's Day episode coming up next season. Maybe we'll do it then. Three. This is not Shakespeare. Catch-22 slash The Catcher in the Rye. We're in sort of mid-century counterculture. territory. Yeah, yeah, catch. I haven't read either of those. I have. I think they're both on our long list. Are they? Yeah. I, mean, I think I started Catching the Rye when I was a teenager, and I was like, this boy's very naughty and rude. <laughs> so I stopped reading it. So the second half of this is, as a side question, I found out about this podcast through Abby's blog. So for those who don't know, um, I used to have a surprisingly popular blog when I was doing my PhD. It was called Bizarre Victoria. It was supposed to be Bizarre Victorian, but the word count wouldn't let me go one higher. So yeah, it was just um, Victorian-related trivia I and things. I would have got rid, rid of the second Z. That's what I would have done. That would have looked awful. Yeah, yeah, okay. um, yeah you're right. Back to the email. <laughs> which I also really enjoyed reading and prompted me to buy a lot more books, including The House of Mirth, The Castle of Otranto, Lady Audley's Secret, The Monk, and more. Recently, though, whenever I try to access it, it says the page no longer exists. Did you shut down your blog, or is it a malfunction? So I, I did actually shut down the blog. The, the reasons <laughs> are, I know, the reasons are twofold. One is that I wrote in a very particular, like, early 2010s style of online comedy writing, which I now kind of find a little bit embarrassing when I read no. um, when I read some of my old entries. I never read it, so I don't know. Good. It was terrible. <laughs> but the, uh, the second reason is that I used to do some joint posts with other friends who have since gone on to hold academic posts, and I think the higher we go up in our careers, the we're a little bit more skittish about the stupid crap we used to write online. So I'm really sorry. I have sort of like, just out of a sense of cringe, made it private. I, I do apologize. But, you know, we have the podcast in any in any case. Yeah, come on. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you, Anna. Yeah, please, thanks a lot. Yeah. Yeah, right. Please feel free to write in again. So, Daniel, what is our text today? Picture the scene. London, the South Bank, Southwark, to be precise. We're at the pub, drinking a couple of inordinately expensive beers. <laughs> it's a fine spring evening, and the place is packed. All walks of life are here, jostling alongside each other. Financiers, landlords, officials, and professionals, tradesmen, grafters, hustlers. The country's really in the shitter. Incredible inequality, an enfeebled and corrupt government. Moralism, superstition, and hypocrisy everywhere. And there's a mysterious disease that just won't go away, uh, <laughs> making our lives a misery. Plus ça change, eh? Plus ça bloody change. But for a brief moment, though, in the pub, uh, you know, seeing everyone together, things don't look quite so bleak until they start talking to each other. Because we're doing Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, can't remember what year it was, 1405 when he died, he left it unfinished. So it goes without saying we are going to spoil this text for you. Your fair dues warning here, um, this, is, this is an unusual one, this is a first for us, where we're giving a blanket sexual content warning, purely because the actual source material is very overtly sexual, bordering on pornographic. If, if you want to get your jingles jangled, maybe listen to this episode. If not, uh, carry on and catch us up on the next one. Carry on medievaling. <laughs> 
carry on up the Thames. Plus, we there is quite a lot in this with sort of dodgy issues of consent or outright rape. Lots of misogyny, gaslighting, anti-Islamic racism, anti-Semitism, beheadings, and just all kinds of violence. So there you go, fair dues, that's what we're going to be talking about. We also, as you may know, have a very strict no guests policy on this podcast. However, some of you may have heard me talk about my best friend Justine before, um, who is a medieval scholar. The last couple of times we did medieval texts, she, you know, I could feel her like tiny body just about to vibrate into the sun with rage because we sort of made these um, big claims. Claims that maybe are not fully substantiated. So we have actually set up a red phone hotline, a sort of emergency hotline here on the Save Me From My Shelf desk. And whenever we make a big outrageous claim, Justine will be able to sense it all the way up in Durham. She's going to call down and uh, she'll correct us in real time. God, that's wild. Isn't it? it is wild. It's not edited at all. No. Hi, everyone. Think of me as some kind of medieval quality control. So I'll be sitting here listening and waiting. Mostly waiting for Daniel to fuck up. So would you like to do some background, please? Yes. So, born in the 1340s, died in 1400. Chaucer, Geoffrey Chaucer. Jeff, if you're friends. Jeff, yeah, uh, as he'd like to be known. Was a functionary under Kings Edward III and Richard II. So he was a kind of all-around official bureaucrat type. He was, a, you know, he did a bit of diplomatic stuff as well. Trade, customs, infrastructure, you know, all of that boring stuff that we don't care about in the humanities. So, as a young man, he briefly fought in the early stage of the... Hundred Years' War, 1337 to 1453. He was captured at the Siege of Reims. Reims. Uh, Reims? I don't know how you say it. Reims? There you go. That's it's that. In <laughs> 1360, and put up for ransom, Edward III paid the princely sum of £16 to get Chaucer released. I wouldn't pay 16 quid for you today. Well... That joke works because we know how much it originally was, don't we? Come on! It's, a, it's another segment from my shelf first. We're having, I don't care about the naysayers, you know who you are. <laughs> We're having the, se- the Measuring Worth alert right now. So what was £16 in 1360 today? Oh no. So, in terms of real wage or real wealth, you know, just the standard inflation thing, that's £12,260. That's quite a lot of money for a ransoming tip for some diplomat. Okay. Two, labour earnings of that income or wealth. 153,200. The relative income or value of that income or wealth is 318,000. Medieval society was very unequal, so you, you know, a lot of people had rents and things. Relative output value of that income or wealth is 6,595,000 pounds. That's a lot of money for one scatological poet, isn't it? Have you finished speaking? Because I, yep. uh, sorry, my, my soul left my body and it was up on the ceiling looking down on us. We just passed through another Middle Ages and into a Renaissance. <laughs> Chaucer was an, also an author and he wrote a kind of, uh, quite a wide ranging lot of works. Uh, a love story, Troilus and Cressida, a dream narrative, The Parliament of Fowls, an astronomical treatise on the astrolabe. Hot. Yes. And he translated from French the popular contemporary love poem, the Roman de la Rose, and from Latin, Boethius's ancient philosophical work, The Consolations of Philosophy. Hot. <laughs> um, the Canterbury Tales is probably his most famous work, and it's a series of stories that are linked together by a frame narrative, so it's a bit like a, a Thousand and One Nights, or maybe 
more contemporaneously, The Decameron by Boccaccio. Chaucer is famous for writing in the local vernacular, English. After a very long period in which Latin and French, or a kind of version of French, had been the dominant languages of high culture in England. So Latin was the language of the Catholic Church, so it kind of dominated religion and learning all across Western Europe. And, you know, we all know about the Norman con uh, Conquest. I was going to say Contest. I don't know what that is. Best Norman, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, after 1066, the monarchy and the aristocracy of England had kind of, you know, they were all pretty much still French. Richard II was born in Bordeaux. They all spoke a kind of uh, version of French. And this is why we have Brexit. Exactly, yeah. The, the Norman yoke. We're finally free of it. But Chaucer, you know, there were other uh, English language poets writing at the same time. We've already done... Gawain and the Green Knight, haven't we? That mm -hmm. was one. Of, that was around the same time. That was another example of an English language poem. So that you know, it was kind of coming back. Yeah. So we struggled, didn't we, with this because it's written in Middle English? Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah. So a little note on this. So this is not in Modern English. This is in Middle English. That is just about transitioning to Modern English. Daniel very bravely tried to read. I, in fact, we we both tried to read the original Middle English. You can almost understand it with enough footnotes, but it is exhausting. Daniel lasted much longer than I did, um, so I switched to an actual modern language version, which Ooh. made this much, much nicer to read. You know, I, I honestly, like, reading the Middle English, I was just sitting there wishing I was a house cat so I could just slap the shit out of anything I didn't understand. Yeah, it's not that easy, is it? No, especially because if you read the original Middle English, this is sort of before the Great Vowel Shift, if you don't know what the Great Vowel Shift is basically due to migration and either positively or negatively due to French influence. So there are competing theories about how French influenced this basically, but English became much less phonetic. So if you read older Middle English, it helps to actually read it out loud. And a good way to remember this is in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, when the John Cleese character is, talks about the English knights and he calls them kniggets. That's actually pretty damn close to authentic mm -hmm. Middle English. It would have originally been pronounced kniegt, and then the Great Vowel Shift happened, and a bunch of letters went silent, and English got really weird, and it no longer was spoken phonetically. But then also, like, vowel sounds are different as well. Yes. Because, like, isn't it, like, ibaka akaka for I bake a cake? Mm. Isn't it something mad like that? We should also note here that we are not going to fully tell all 24 stories because nobody has that kind of time. A lot of these stories are fragments anyway, so we couldn't really fully recap them even if we wanted to because they weren't finished. So we've chosen seven of the 24 tales to cover in depth because, you know, 24 stories in this economy. Mm. Um, so we picked basically the, the seven that are the most interesting or the most often taught, plus the sort of general prologue. And all the, all the rest we will cover, but we're just going to sum them up in basically a sentence. Mm. I mean, Chaucer himself intended to do 120, and he only did 24. So I feel like we Thank can be excused, you know? So, we start... Befill that in that season on a day, in Southwark at the tabard as I lay, ready to wenden on my pilgrimage, to Canterbury with full devout courage. At night was come into that hostelry well nine and twenty in a company of sundry folk, by adventure Ifala, in a fellowship, and pilgrims were they all. So, one night in the tabard inn in Southwark, London South Bank, we have our narrator, which seems like a sort of version of Chaucer himself, and he's preparing to go on pilgrimage to Canterbury. 
They're on their way to Canterbury to visit the shrine of Thomas Becket, who's a religious martyr who has a sort of reputation for being able to heal the wicked. So that should kind of tell us something about all these bozos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a whole lot of other people there. 29 of them. They're all from all different walks of life and they all turn up at the same inn to make a pilgrimage and Chaucer introduces them and this is the sort of the, the crux, uh, not the crux, this like makes up the majority of the prologue, just him ca characterising these figures. So let's go through them. Yeah, so as we go through our ragtag ensemble who are about to get their shit blessed, tell us all stories, we're going to put in a little ding for each character to help separate them out. Okay. So you don't need to remember these people. This is just Chaucer running down a list and looking at people for five seconds. It's a good bit, though. It's like a good picture of medieval society, isn't it? Or a, a tranche of it. So we start with a knight, a, a knicht. For the time he first began to ride and out, he loved chivalry, truth and honor, freedom and courtesy. The guy is like a standard knight. He's been on loads of crusades, both your standard, you know, your garden <laughs> crusade to Jerusalem. He's also been on northern crusades, hasn't he, to the Baltics. So he's really, you know, been around the block a bit. And the knight is with his son, who is also his squire and basically a complete fuckboy. A lover and a lusty bachelor. Mm. Yes, that's what we want. A young man, he's also part of the knight's retinue. He has a nice green baldric and horn. Don't know what that is. Don't want to know. The next person in the, the sort of ragtag bunch is a prioress who I guess is one rank below an abbess and the narrator is in sort of raptures over what a prissy sensitive little thing she is and can you even believe this she wipes her mouth well after she eats nice and she sings hymns beautifully through her nose and also there's a nun with her and we get no description at all except to say she's there because he used up his whole word count on this Prioress. And a priest. She's got a junior partner priest. Didn't even notice him. A monk. He likes hunting and eating. Then there's a friar. A similar sort of good time guy. He sings. He weeps with his parishioners. He plays the hurdy-gurdy. <laughs> he has a grand time hearing people's confessions and letting them off the hook real easy, penance-wise, for a bit of a bribe. So, yeah, all right, all mm, right. Sounds like a good gig. A merchant. Pointy beard. Flemish hat, a pretty nice Flemish hat at that. He looks rich, he's actually in debt, so you know, let that be a lesson to you. Then there's an Oxford cleric, aka a student, and he's very thin because he spends all his money on books instead of food. And Justine, I would like to point out that when we were in high school and read this, you were really attached to this character because you were convinced in university this was going to be you, and you were very scared that you weren't going to eat enough. All right, whereas I model myself after the next character, a sergeant of the law. Don't know why I said that. He's just a kind of pompous lawyer. We're not going to really talk about him that much. Screw that guy. <laughs> then, a Franklin. What's a Franklin? It's a landowner. Who likes to get morning drunk. <laughs> I mean, who among us? Exactly, yeah. A haberdasher, a carpenter, a webber, brackets weaver, a dyer, and a tapisser, a tapestry weaver. Two different kinds of weaver. Successful artisans, and they're all fully paid up guild members. The next guy is a cook. His personality is a cook. Next, we've got a shipman from Dartmouth. He's got a nice suntan. He's well known all the way from Hull to Carthage. I know the wrong city got destroyed and sold to <laughs> fair, I think. Then a doctor. His personality is doctor. <laughs> Chaucer's just listing professions he knows now. Yeah, well, it's like it's like an improv thing, isn't it? Uh, doctor. Uh, <laughs> okay, next, 
a wife of Bath. Everyone shut the fuck up, the star is here. The star is here. Yeah, she's a kind of an older woman. She's had a few husbands. She's been around the block several times. She's got nice, moist shoes, Chaucer tells us, <laughs> and gap teeth, because that's what all the boys like, isn't it, Abby? Daniel's referencing a story I've told him God knows how many times. In my undergrad, we studied the wife of Bath's tale, and my professor was an expert in sort of, you know, middle and old English. And she began to explain, like, oh, there's this joke, the wife of Bath, she's got a gap between her teeth, and you know what they say about a lady with a gap between her teeth. And then this asshole named Ashley interrupted to ask an irrelevant question and derailed her, and she never told us what the joke was. And I have never forgiven you. Fuck you, Ashley. So, yeah, listeners, Ashley, the professor, anybody else, if you know what gap teeth means, I'd like to hear it. Five husbands, though. That's too many husbands. She's like, there's a cue. Keep it moving. Okay. Now a parson who seems to be one of the only truly devout religious men here. And his brother, a plowman, quote, that had a lad of dong full many a father. You know what that means, don't you? It no. Means, well, it means he's carted a lot of shit in his time. Literal yeah, shit. Literal he's shite. literally yeah. carting shit Dong is shit. There's a miller who's a big dude who likes to wrestle and get drunk. <laughs> We've got a mournsiple. Probably don't need to explain that, do I? I think like everyone, all the young people these days want to be municipals, don't they? <laughs> but just in case anybody does need to know any, there's kind of any imbeciles out there. Yeah, well, I mean, just go on multiple TikTok. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, come yeah, on. If, if you don't have TikTok, he's a servant of the Inns of Court, and he's fleecing the lawyers who live there. <laughs> okay, so now we get to the diss track segment of yeah. these introductions. <laughs> So we have a Reeve, who is a skinny little uggo and a, just a parsimonious bully. And a Reeve is a kind of estate manager. Then we have a summoner, a guy with a sauce fleam face. Yeah, sauce fleam. That means covered in spots, apparently. It's a good term. I think we should bring it back. He's a sort of like church bailiff policeman figure, and he's corrupt. Yeah, so can, can I read the bit from my version? Go on. His eyes were narrow, he was as hot and lecherous as a sparrow, because you know how sparrows love fucking. Black scabby brows he had, and a thin beard. Children were afraid when he appeared. And finally... We have the partner who rides with the summoner. He had hair as yellow as wax, hanging down smoothly like a hank of flax. In driblets fell his locks. Nice. Ugh. So he has these bulging eyes, he can't grow a beard. Man, I think a summoner and a partner clearly pissed off Chaucer in real life, which is a joke that is made in the movie A Knight's Tale, which features Chaucer as a character. All right, I'll have to give it a watch. No, you'd hate it. Okay, so they're all at the Tabard Inn. That's, that's all the cast and characters. They're all at the Tabard Inn, and the landlord, Harry Bailey, recommends to them that to pass the time on pilgrimage, they should each tell two stories on the way there and two on the way back. And he'll join them on the way to judge their tales. And then, like, I think he says like he'll give the winner a nice di dinner or something, you know. So, as they head off, the knight, being the highest, highest in the feudal pecking order, goes first. So, the knight's tale, which we're just going to sum up real quick because I've been told this is boring. So the knight tells a story about these two knights and cousins in ancient Greece. So cousin means lover. These two dudes are clearly boinking. And they both fall in love with the same woman. And that leads to this huge breakdown of their relationship, which is resolved by a tournament duel that's guided by the Greek gods. And then one of them dies. So 
Again, just have a thruple, people. Surely courtly love makes provision for that. Next, screw the knight's prologue. We don't like knights on this podcast, do we? We're, we're of the people. We've had the first story, now the game is afoot. Who's next in the pecking order? A man of the cloth, surely. Monk, why don't you tell us a story? No, wait, no, I got a story for you. Wait, yeah. Well, no, but you're a... a I'm a miller, and yeah. I... Sh- 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 you want to hear a story? I guess stories. Yeah, there's a drunken miller, and he... Well, he will not be shut up. So it's quite clear that the miller's not going to tell a noble tale, but he insists on going on next. And he's like, don't blame me if you're offended. I'm drunk. You know, that classic excuse. We all have that friend who says, I can't be held responsible for what I do when I've been drinking. And yeah. So he's, he's this guy. So yeah, he just completely jumps the queue. Okay, so here's the Miller's tale. There's this rich old carpenter who takes in a student as a lodger. Quote, the lad was known as Nicholas the Gallant, and making love in secret was his talent. And Nicholas decks out his bedroom with herbs and fruit and some astronomer shit, which apparently all the ladies love. It gets them all hot under their tabards. And the old carpenter who's renting out this room has this beautiful 18-year-old wife named Allison. And she's described in slightly strange ways. Quote, her body was as slender as any weasels. <laughs> so the miller here comments, you know, the, the, our narrator, the miller, says that the carpenter should really have read the Roman statesman Cato, who said you should marry somebody close to your own age. Um, So basically everything that's about to happen to this old carpenter is his own fault. The carpenter is also very naive, like bordering on dumb. And the prefab I have here is, I guess they met on OK Stupid. Yeah. (laughs) It's a terrible (laughs) joke. That's not a good thing. I feel like we should have a little uh, sting for every classical reference as well because it's just improbable that uh, maybe i'm being down but this carpenter would be able to quote cato yeah I know. <laughs> but there's a lot of it throughout this text so it's worth worth having a sting i think Elsie's up. so one day when this old carpenter is out his student lodger pulls a trump and grabs the wife by the pussy quote <laughs> he made a grab and caught her by the quim i don't should i bleep quim I don't know. It's quaint in the original, if anyone's interested. Interesting. Which I quite like. How uh, quaint? <laughs> I'd be offended if somebody called my hoo-ha quaint. Okay. That's, I'd be like, mm, it's, it's actually very urbane. It's very sophisticated. You wouldn't know. <laughs> so uh, he pulls a whole, baby, if you don't have sex with me, I'll literally die line. And she's like, uh, hard pass. But eventually, Nicholas, the, the gallant, he convinces her. So she's like, all right, I'm going to look for the next available opportunity. We know when my husband's away and we can have sex. And then, here we go in our second tale, he gives her a hand job. Um, quote, and Nicholas stroked her loins a bit and kissed her sweetly. And then he goes off and he plays the harp. So, it's a holy day. A holiday. For people who don't know the Middle English. Yeah. And Alison goes to church. To pray the heavy petting away? Maybe. I don't know. She's the object of further infatuation at church. Absalom, the parish clerk, is there. He's got lovely golden locks and is smartly dressed. Absalom is smitten. He plays his gitterninger. A type of guitar or something, I don't know. <laughs> uh, underneath Alison's window and performs his little heart out as Herod in the local mystery play again to impress Alison. So, like in The Knight's Tale, we've got sort of another, another love triangle, if we don't count John, Alison's husband. 
but Nicholas has the home advantage. Briefly, Alison's forehead shone as bright as any day. What's going on with that then? Like, we've had so many texts where we go on, where they go on about women's foreheads, and now that's just gone, hasn't it? We've had like a thousand year period of men ogling women's foreheads, and now the male gaze has shifted elsewhere. Yeah, uh, my boobs are down here. Daniel. Exactly. Yeah. Um, is that what? <laughs> no, I actually I know this. This um, it was actually considered a sign of um grace and intelligence to have a very large forehead to have your your hairline be way high up. So like if you had a five or six head, that's much hotter to the point that women would actually like pluck their hair or pull their hair back really tight to make their forehead look as big as possible. All right. Um, also, is Absalon officially supposed to be celibate? I don't know. That's one for Justine to explain to me because maybe the parish clerk didn't have to be celibate. I don't know. Justine, you don't need to explain, because it doesn't matter, it just makes it hotter. Okay, right. You know, back at home, the carpenters, you know, out, Allison and Nicholas are there. And Nicholas doesn't just want a quick fumble on the kitchen table, though. He wants to spend the whole night with Allison. So he concocts a plan. When the carpenter comes home, Nicholas convinces him that he's done some of his astrology stuff, and he sees the signs of an oncoming disaster. Essentially, God is going to flood the earth again, and the three of them can escape death by hanging in bathtubs from the roof of the barn, you know, one for each of them, and they'll, they'll stock the bathtubs up with food and with an axe. A lot of pottage in that, <laughs> I suspect. Hello? Hello? I sure friggin' hope this phone you've set up works, because I have had it up to here with Daniel's obsession with pottage. I'm not sure if he's being sponsored by or paid off by the pottage marketing board, but f***ing hell, people in the Middle Ages ate stuff other than pottage. So, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Oh, yeah, and in uh, response to your Parish Clark's question, uh, yeah, I think they were probably expected to be celibate. They were in minor orders, but, you know, that didn't always turn out that well. So, bye. Carry on. And when the floodwaters rise up, all they have to do is chop themselves free from the roof with the axe, and they'll just, you know, float out until God wrings the earth out like a sponge. They'll float as doeth the white duck after her drake. That's nice. <laughs> Nicholas's real plan, of course, is to get the carpenter shaking in his boots and up in a like a sort of place where he can't get down in a in a roof tub while he and Allison sneak back down to interfere with each other. So the carpenter buys it, and Nicholas even convinces him that he isn't allowed to sleep with his wife Allison between now and Judgment Day, lest further sin bring God's <laughs> wrath directly nice upon them. So they rig up the tubs to the roof, they all climb in, the carpenter soon falls asleep in exhaustion, and then Allison and Nicholas jump back down on their ladders, and they go inside and they get busy with each other. They do it all the ways. They do it front ways, they do it back ways, sideways. I've run out of ways. Slam. With the lights on. Yeah. Naughty. They go tee-hee a lot, don't they? That's, pretty, that's how people laugh about them. Uh, unfortunately, though, later that night, Absalom turns up and knocks at the window to tell Alison his love longing. What do ye honeycomb, sweet Alison, my fair bird, my sweet cinnamon? I mourn for you, as doeth a lamb after the teat, etc. Oh, 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 I'm just <laughs> going to puke. Oh, and it's, well... Some people like that. Absalom, so. no! We were rooting for you. You were the hunky guy with a job. Nicholas is such an ass. Well... And now you're getting all creepy with it? Allison initially tells him to bugger off. 
But Absalon says he'll only leave after she gives him a kiss. So Alison's like, yeah, all right. And here's, the, here's what follows. Quote, Dark was the night as pitch, or as the coal, and at the window out she put her hole. Uh, and Absalom, him feel no better nor worse, but with his mouth he kissed her naked ass, full savourly. Once he was aware of this, aback he started, and thought it was amiss, for well he wist, a woman hath no beard. I.e. he's like, I've just kissed something, it's got a beard. So he's kissed a hairy ass. I was going to say, well, I thought he was getting a little frontside action. Nah, he's kissing a hairy ass, isn't he? Oh, or maybe, if she, I mean, then that's not perineum and all that, I suppose. I don't know. So good day for Allison? Yeah. So he's basically, yeah. So he's just thinking he was going to kiss Allison's cute little face. Instead, he kisses her butthole. Um... <laughs> English literature, ladies and gentlemen, one of your greatest classics. So Allison laughs at him, and he has a really hard time hiding how much he's insulted by this. Although, surely, like, this is even more intimate than a kiss, so I was like, shouldn't he be yeah, kind of pleased? Yeah, I didn't, yeah. Regardless, he is, well, he, he's not nonchalant. He's extremely chalant, <laughs> and he decides, you know what, Allison's a bit of a tart, and I'm going to pay her back for this. So he's like, oh, oh, you want to go low? I'll go low. I'll go straight to hell. That's how low I'll go. Whoa. And he rushes off to the blacksmith. He then gets from the blacksmith a red hot poker and sneaks back to Allison's window. This guy has gone full incel. He's going to brand a woman's butt because she's refusing to kiss him. Like I was like, come on, you were my little dramatic prince for a few lines. You know, we were all rooting yeah, for you. It's always the way though, isn't it? Yeah, so he, he yells up and he's like, Allison, I'll, I'll give you a gold ring for another one of those delightful kisses. Now, unfortunately, Nicholas, who Absalom does not know is there, he's just gotten up out of bed. Risen for to piss. Yeah, because he needs to go pee. And so he decides to piss out the window. Do, do they not have some sort of chamber pot? He doesn't piss out the window. Situation? He's just like, oh, I'll have a go this time. Oh, sorry. I just thought people in that period just pissing no. shit outside of, <laughs> no, just he, out a window. He's like, oh, I'm up. Let's get in on the prank. Gotcha. Okay, sorry. I thought he was there at the window no. with his dongle out anyway. No. Um, <laughs> no. Nicholas wants to improve on Allison's joke, and he sticks his ass out the window. Quote, This Nicholas at once lay fly a fart as loud as if it were a thunderclap. <laughs> he was nearly blinded by the blast, poor chap. <laughs> but his hot iron was ready. With a hump, he smote him in the middle of the rump. So R.I.P. Nicholas's butthole. Yeah, nasty. So Nicholas starts screaming for water. The carpenter, meanwhile, who we have left awaiting a flood apocalypse up in a, a roof bath. Tub. Yeah. He hears Nicholas screaming water. He thinks the floods come, and so he chops down his bathtub with his axe to float away. Obviously, he crashes to the ground, and all the neighbors start, you know, waking up and running over due to the commotion, and he's all dazed, and he starts talking about floods and bathtubs, and the whole town thinks he's gone mad. And that's the end. No one really suffers any consequences for anything except the carpenter, and he's just sitting there like, oh, okay, I guess I'm the asshole. <laughs> yeah. The end. Okay, 
So that's the end of our first sort of substantial tale, the Millers. And now we go on to the Reeves prologue. The Reeve, that's a kind of land manager for a big landowner. He's also a carpenter, so he's taken offence at the last story, hasn't he? He thinks it's making fun of his profession. So he decides to tell a story about a Miller. He's getting back at the drunken Miller who just told this, you know, anti-carpenter story. I think every single story is basically just a post yeah. if we just go ahead with that understanding yeah after, after the initial thing of getting the night and then trying to go down by rank it suddenly turned very mean-spirited so the reeves name is oswald he rides a horse named scott his horse is in a frat yes <laughs> the reeves starts his story there's this Mella simpkin he's a bully and he cheats his customers and he and his wife you know they're on the they're on the make they're on the up and up they're social climbers they have a 20 year old daughter Maylene. Maylene? Malin? I think it's Maylene. My, think... Don't be touching my daughter Maylene. I'm saving her for a rich husband. <laughs> that's that's what the Miller talks like. I think it's Malin. Whatever. I don't know. Get Justine in there. Justine. Sorry. Um, <gasps> oh no. Oh, oh she's gonna. I can feel her boiling over. She hates that. Well, it's literally just a, an allusion to the Maylene Maylene confusion, mm -hmm. but whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm sure she would appreciate that. You're going to get it now. Okay. So, you know, but they're kind of deluded. I think the point is that she's never going to really, like, marry some rich guy because they're just millers and they're not very rich. Maylene is quite pretty, though, and Chaucer, he makes it very clear to us that she is well endowed in the old uh, arse department. In the old caboose. Yeah, she's got a good a good lower eye. Let's put it that way. Oh, damn it. As Chaucer would put it. Yeah, okay, so guys, I looked up the actual Middle English section here, and this is what Chaucer wrote. This wench thick and well-grown was, with camus nose and, eye and eyes gray as glass with buttocks broad and breast round and high. But right fair was her hair. I will not lie. So we're not only getting an authentic 13th century example of calling a woman thick, but we're also getting an I like big butts and I cannot lie. This is astonishing. It is resplendent. It's sublime. Carry on, Daniel. Hang on, before Daniel carries on, I just have to say that it's actually a 14th century reference to Thick, not the 13th century. Also, Daniel, I fucking heard that about Justin. Okay, back to the story. Simkin the Miller does all the flower grinding for a local college, Cambridge College, and he has a tendency to cheat them. Fuck them, that's what I think. So, two students, John and Alan, hear about, you know, they're a bit sick of all their college being cheated. So they decide to try and, like, catch Sim Simpkin in the act, maybe even given a taste of his own medicine. They're Geordies. So we get this kind of, you know, if you're reading it in the Middle English, you get Chaucer in the kind of Middle English London dialect trying to kind of do a Geordie accent. It's very confusing. I kind of started to lose the world to live when I was reading it. They talk a lot about St. Cuthbert. Like all Ge <laughs> Geordies are still like that now, though. They love St. Cuthbert. Oh, you don't have to tell me about Geordies and St. Cuthbert, Daniel. I know how Ge I don't know oh, where okay. I was going with this. So, they kind of go to Simpkin's house, try to hang around, watch him grinding the flour, to see if he's kind of cutting off any bits for himself. The miller, he's smarter than a couple of students. Experts, screw that. <laughs> he unties their horse and, you know, slaps it on the arse and sends it off into the fence. So we've got to go and chase it. 
he can get back to work stealing their flour and his wife starts baking it into a loaf of bread. The students, by the end of the day, they've come back, they're exhausted, they know they've been cheated, but they have no proof. Furious, they decide to take a crueler revenge. So they convince the miller to let them stay the night at his place, even though his house is really small. They all have to share a bedroom. The miller and his wife in one bed with the baby cradle at their feet, his daughter in another bed, and the two students, their guests, in a third bed. This is the worst hostile situation I have ever heard. Yeah. Did we mention that they have a baby, the miller? Doesn't matter. The miller has a baby. That's key. That night, they all get really drunk. Uh, it's probably what you could do better then. Uh, and now, everyone goes to bed, and the miller and his wife both pass out, and they're snoring like anything. Alan and John giggle in bed uh, together. A lot of giggling happening in this. Yeah, teehee. Alan gets up and decides to t make the women in the miller's life the pawns of his revenge. I fucking hate this story, I'm just gonna say this now. Yeah, this is quite a nasty one, isn't it? It's not as funny as the miller's story. So he just kind of leaps into the daughter's bed and, you know, has his way with her. It's kind of, it's hard to tell what the implication is of what's going on here. It doesn't seem like a very consensual thing. Quote, and ere she saw him, he had drawn so nigh, it was too late for her to give a cry. To put it briefly, they were soon at one. So, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not clear how consensual this is. Doesn't sound very. Don't start in on somebody when they're asleep, yeah, is all I'm going to yeah. say. So, that's Alan doing his revenge. John, meanwhile, the other student, is back in his own bed, and he's feeling he's feeling real left out. Um, maybe a little queer reading here, you think? Uh, if you like. Uh, again, try and stop me. Okay. In any case, the miller's wife gets up in the middle of the night to go pee, and John sees his opportunity. So while she's off, he moves the baby's cradle from the foot of the miller's bed to the foot of his own. And so when the miller's wife comes back, she feels for the cradle because that's apparently the only way you can know where your bed is. I mean, spatial awareness is not her strong suit. And Have so you seen a medieval drawing? They, got, they don't know perspective. <laughs> you know, like, they don't know what they're on about. So she gets into whatever bed the baby cradle is at the foot of. So she jumps in bed with John, thinking it's her husband. And he just starts going right to town on her. And she's like, yeah, all right. I mean, I assume a skinny, much younger student with a different dick is going to feel a lot different than your burly, two decades older husband. And they probably have much, you know, different sexing techniques, but what do I know? I'm not here for the realism. Um, I'm actually not going to read this quote because I thought it was a little pornographic for me. But they talk about how John's penis is bigger than the Miller's and how it's the best sex she's ever had, so... She likes. Again, dubious consent. Does she know? I don't know. Mm. Also, this is a um, the kind of bed swapping trick with cradles. That's apparently lifted from Fablio. Oh, okay. A kind of old genre of bawdy stories from the Middle Ages. I don't know if Justine has anything to say about Fablio. <sighs> well, as much as it pains me to admit this, yes, Daniel, you are right. This is a Fablio. And in fact, all of the really rude stories that Chaucer's telling here uh, are fabulous and, and would have been familiar to people in some way. Um, so, for example, apparently a, a distant relation of the Summoner's Tale is a tale that named uh, The Tale of the Priest's Bladder. And then uh, a distant cousin of the Miller's Tale is based on a story called Beranger of the Long Arse. And, you know, who wouldn't want to hear a tale like that? Who can resist a long arse? So, remember, kids, 
People in the Middle Ages loved a dirty story just as much as those people in the modern day. Meanwhile, we're in the other bed, the one with the daughter and Alan. He is going until dawn. Till dawn? Did he eat that Super Mario star he kept around for energy? So, she's kind of into it apparently and she whispers kind of like a sweet nothings to him. And when he has to go, before the miller wakes up, she tells him that, yeah, her dad is a cheat, he did steal their flour, and there's a loaf of bread behind the door. You know, made up of the stolen flour, so why don't you go and nick it back? Mmm, door bread. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was thinking that. Yeah, is it keeping the door open? Is it like a, a doorstop? So Alan's, you know, a, a deed, the deed done, he decides to go back to bed with John. He, you know, feels for it, feels the cradle, and he's like, oh no, this can't be my bed, this must be the miller and his wife's bed. So he goes in the next bed, you can see what's happening, he's getting in bed with the miller. He shakes John awake, who's actually the miller, and confesses his escapades. You know, I can't, you can't believe what I've done with, with his daughter. Three times the night from midnight into morn, the miller's daughter helped me grind me corn. So, grinding corn uh, is, what kind of, is his? Uh, truly, these are the last days of Sodom. So, everyone's basically in the wrong bed. Alan has just accidentally confessed to the miller, who he thinks is John. And the miller wakes up, hears this, and starts beating the crap out of him. This wakes up the wife, who has no idea she's in bed with John, maybe. Uh-huh. Mm. And it's still dark, so she gropes her way to the wall, where there's a stick, and she just starts swinging blindly away, and she accidentally cracks her husband on the head. The two students flee, laughing, tee-hee-hee, I guess leaving the miller seriously injured or dead, and for good measure, they steal that loaf of bread behind the door, and isn't this all hilarious? Hope the daughter enjoys being a single mother and ruined forever in the eyes of society. On the plus side, at least she probably can't be thrown into a volcano or given to a sea monster as a virgin sacrifice anymore, so I guess there's that silver lining. That's the Reeves tale. Didn't we have fun, listeners? Mm-hmm. Define mm. fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, now we go on to the cook's prologue and tale. This one, you know, it seems to be unfinished, but it's kind of lots more drinking and sex. It's about a, a kind of a, a drunken apprentice who moves in with a lady shopkeeper who's secretly a sex worker. Yeah, it's unfinished. We don't know if this is deliberately unfinished or, or what, like, is Chaucer doing some kind of postmodern thing? Who knows? <laughs> Well, I don't know. There are a few, there is one where well, let's not well say it later. But anyway, next the man of laws tale. So this is an adventure tale of ancient Rome. Elsie's up about a princess named Constance who proves her constant yeah. Christian faith. And there's a good bit of anti-Islamic sentiment thrown in here, just cause. How could you be an Islamophobe in ancient Rome? Because they didn't have it back then, did they? Daniel, bother another author with your questions. Okay, that's fine. Now, we're on to a good one. The Wife of Bath's prologue. And this is a long prologue, isn't it? Longer than any of the others, so it's worth a bit of detail. So, The Wife of Bath, an older woman, had five husbands. We've already been introduced, haven't we? And she's like, I've got enough experience of marriage to know that it's a woe. She first married when she was 12. Oh, me too. <laughs> and it's been a misery, no matter how worthy her husbands were. She starts her lecture on married life by questioning religious directives about marriage and sexuality. Why is there so much praise for monogamy when King Solomon, Abraham and Jacob had loads of wives? You know, riddle me that. 
She's like, I've had five husbands and will gladly have a sixth. And then we just get crickets. <laughs> everyone kind of turns the other way. And then she's like, also, what's the deal with everyone being so obsessed with virginity? Quote, if God had commanded maidenhead, then had he damned weddings with the dead, you know? <laughs> So she's basically like, hey, a nice patriarchy you got there. It would be such a shame if someone smashed it. Yeah. Moreover, she says, tell me also, to what conclusion were members made of generation and of so perfect ways a right e wrought? Trusteth right well they were not made for naught. I.e., why do we have willies and fannies? They weren't made for nothing. So the wife of Bath, she, she kind of starts her prologue sounding a bit like some kind of sex-positive feminist, doesn't she? But things start to take a funny turn down the line, so let's hear a bit of that. Why did I say Willie's and Fanny's? So then she gets, she starts actually describing her husbands, and it kind of gets a little weird from here. So she says she's had three good husbands, and they were good because they were rich, old, and let her get away with murder. And then she's had two bad husbands. One of them had a mistress, and one used to beat her. But she loves him best of all because he was so good in bed, and he kind of disdained her, which is really sexy. There's also a weird bit about her fifth husband having been an Oxford student who went to lodge at the wife of Bath's grandmother's house, and her grandmother's name was Allison. What is this intertextual bullshit? I like that. About, there's Did, a few moments like that in this. Just like, are, are you the people from... The Miller's Tale. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Is she also called Alison as well? So I don't. Oh yeah, I maybe. Like every, was every woman in the Middle Ages called Alison? So now we get on to the wife of Bath's tale, and she tells a story about King Arthur's court, and Arthur had a knight who was quote a lusty liver who was walking in the. Is that like a lusty kidney? I think it meant somebody who lives lustily. Oh, right. Um, I just imagine a big liver walking around in a suit of armor, <laughs> getting it off with Going people. ladies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the knight is walking in the woods one day. He sees a woman walking ahead of him, and without f any further ado, he rapes her. The knight is all very like, hey, I cannot be blamed. She's clearly an enchantress who's cast a dark spell on my dick. But the whole thing ends up causing a big enough fuss at the court for King Arthur to demand the knight's head on a pike. Queen Guinevere pipes up and she's like, nah, let's make it more interesting. And Arthur's kind of like, oh, cool. And what, like in a saw torture kind of way. And she's like, no, no, much gentler. Let him go, free to roam the country, as long as he promises to come back in one year and a day and answer me the following question. Quote, what is the one thing that women most desire? If he answers right, he can live. But the knight is super bummed out because he has to go learn about women and he sort of scuffs his toe and he's like, fine. It's a bit like Gawain in the Green Knight. It's incredibly it? it's like, yeah. like Gawain in the Green Knight. He walks around the whole country knocking on doors, asking women, what? You know, I'm just asking a few few questions for my uh, <laughs> uh, employers. What, what do women most want in the world? Yeah, I, I'm super glad that he has a lot of access to women home alone. Yeah, it's, it's very good of Guinevere to put him in these uh, situations. So, not one, n none of them kind of really agree with each other. He gets a lot of conflicting messages. Some said that women wanted wealth and treasure. Honor said some. Some jollity and pleasure. Some said gorgeous clothes and others fun in bed. To be oft widowed and remarried, said others again. And some that what most mattered was that we should be cosseted and flattered. So there's a lot of different results. It's almost like women are not a homogenous mass. It's almost like we're individuals. Um, no. When the knight's year and a day are up, he heads back to Camelot, 
and he's riding his horse through a wood when he sees an ugly old woman. She says that, quote, ugly old women know a thing or two, so she can help him find what he's looking for, if he swears to do whatever she asks next of him. And he agrees, and so she, she sort of whispers the answer. So the knight goes back to court, sort of in both senses of the court. It's, mm. it's the royal court and also now a court of law. And Guinevere is like, well, 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 look who came back. Mm -hmm. And your answer to my question? And the answer, which the old woman in the woods told him, is women want to have control over men. Quote, a woman wants the selfsame sovereignty over her husband as over her lover. And master him. He must not be above her. Red-pilled. There's more of this red-pilled stuff, isn't there? <laughs> That's what the wife of the bath's all about. She seems like a feminist. She ain't. And Guinevere's like, that's right, dummy, you get to live. Now, in my version of the tale, the poor woman who he assaulted would sort of drop kick him over a dark sea and he would never be seen again, but I don't make the rules. I just work here. Before court is adjourned, the old woman turns up and parts the crown, saying, Wait, I'm still owed a promise from this knight. Before this court, I ask you then, Sir Knight, to keep your word and take me for your wife, for well you know that I have saved your life. <laughs> so old lady's talk, isn't it? He tries to wiggle out of it, paying her off and stuff, you know, but she says, your money ain't good here. Give me the conjugal nasty or else. That's not a direct quote. <laughs> so smash cut to them sitting in bed on their wedding night. He is miserable, and he says, quote, Nothing can ever be put right again. You're old and so abominably plain, so poor to start with, so low-bred to follow. <laughs> it's little wonder if I twist and wallow. So he's basically like, You're not like all the other girls. You're much, much worse. <laughs> and she goes, Okay, yes, I'm old and ugly, but, baby, flip side... I'll never cheat on you, cause no other man's gonna want me. Silver lining. So I'll give you the choice. Would you rather have me be old and ugly but faithful, or young and pretty but sleeping with all the dudes? He says, My lady and my love, my dearest wife, I leave the matter to your wise decision. You made the choice yourself for the provision of what may be agreeable and rich in honor to us both. I don't care which. So she's like, Oh ho ho, so you're... You're giving me mastery over you? The thing that all women want? And he's like, yeah, whatever. I just don't care anymore. My life is over. And poof, she instantly turns into a beautiful young woman who he jumps on and fucks instantly. And, you know, she's apparently good at sex and she does it all the ways. Front ways. Mm -hmm. Back ways sideways with the lights on if you recall from before so the knight and his witch i don't know what she is live happily ever after i'm so glad it all worked out for the rapist and glad that nobody is going to be confused at court tomorrow when he turns up with a woman who looks like sarah jessica parker from the middle of hocus pocus instead of the woman he married who looked like sarah jessica parker from the beginning of hocus pocus and the tale ends with the wife of bath saying Quote, and Jesus, hear my prayer. Cut short the lives of those who won't be governed by their wives. Is that the message? Mm. We d I... The friar. 
sort of like a guy who works in a chip shop, innit? Um, we get his prologue. He congratulates the wife of Bath on her tail and says he's coming hot for summoners. He doesn't like summoners, and there's one in the group, so he's going to make a little satirical story about them. He says they're all kind of corrupt civil servant types. Here's the story. There's a summoner. He goes around issuing charges for people in the town who are caught breaking church rules. The summoner has a gang of spies to inform on the local populace, and he gets bribes all the time to make the charges go away. He's also a bored or a pimp. It's good to have a side hustle. Well, but it's not a side hustle, because <laughs> the people that sleep with his, you know, employees... They pass on the details, and then he can be like, oh, I think you've just been visiting some Brussels, haven't you? And How so, did you know? Yeah, exactly. So, one day, the summoner, he's out, you know, doing his business. He's like, I, I want to, you know, rip off a widow today on some trumped-up charge. He's out on the road, and he runs into a guy who's sort of dressed up like Robin Hood. Apparently, a bright green outfit with a bow and a little jaunty hat was sort of the uniform for outlaws in the medieval period. Yeah, it's like nowadays somebody in like a stripy shirt with like a big sack with a dollar yeah, sign on it. Immediately arrest that guy. So he strikes up a conversation with this young outlaw. And he's like, but you know what, Summoner, you're also kind of a thief, because I know you rip off people. So because you're, you're basically one of us, right? Like, I'll protect you in my realm. And the summer's like, oh my god, what a great guy. And they quickly become forever friends. Hooray. And then he's like, what's your story, friend? And this kind of outlaw yeoman guy goes, well, actually, funny fact, I'm a demon straight from hell. And I just walk around taking what's given to me by people I come across. I'm sorry, he's a demon straight from hell. I just, I, you, you, you passed over that. Yeah. So presumably the summoner really freaks out about this or... No. The summoner takes us very much in his stride and asks a lot of just kind of theological sorts of questions about devils and things. And how is it that you're taking a human form? This is what he says. Yet tell me, quod the summoner, faithfully, make ye yow new bodies thus always of elements? The fiend answered, nay. Sometime we feign and sometime we arise with dead bodies in full sundry wise. So the summoner's like, do you make a whole new body for yourself? And he's like... No, we use other people's bodies, preferably of the dead. Uh, that's an interesting factoid. Yeah, this poor outlaw who's just died, I guess, and his hand was mm. being used like a hand puppet. Exactly, yeah. Up his... <laughs> the devil's hand up his uh, lower eye, he thinks. <laughs> so, the summoner does not mind this at all. He just thinks it's mildly interesting, and they're still best buddies forever. They agree to go exploring together to celebrate their new friendship and just kind of accept whatever people give them, right? So the demon's like, yeah, people just, like, accidentally give me things. I personally, if I were the summoner, would like much more specific details, but that's just me, you know, wary of demons. You know, my mother always said I was too wary of demons. That's where you crap at the blues guitar. <laughs> Somebody had to say it. So they come to a town, and there's this farm cart that's stuck fast in the mud, and the man driving it yells in frustration, quote, The devil take all, cart, horse, and hay in one. Stop. The horse is called Scott. <gasps> is that mo more intertextuality, or were a lot of horses called Scott back then? Was every horse named Scott? <laughs> <laughs> so the summoner's like, Oh yeah, I was hoping to get some hay today. Let's get to pilfering. This guy said, the devil take my cart. And the demon's like, no, no, no. He rides by. He's like, he didn't actually offer it earnestly. He was just blowing off some steam. Like, I'll, I'll let you know when it's a genuine offer. I can tell the difference. Mm. So this, um, uh, this, I like that this demon obeys the spirit of the law. 
not just the letter of the law. That's very good of him. Like, yeah. a vampire would never. Most monsters, I feel, are very much letter of the law. So this is quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. The summoner's like, oh, there's this horrible old... I don't want to say bitch. <laughs> yeah, oh, do you want me to say no. it? There's this horrible old cow nearby who hates parting with her money. Let's go stir up shit there. So they knock at her window and say she's going to be excommunicated, because that's what summoners can do. I have that authority. You're going to be excommunicated unless you ride a long distance tomorrow to beg at the archdeacon's feet. She's too old to ride that far, so he's like, well, hmm, I can let you off the hook, but for the... You know, it'll cost you the low, low price of 12 pence. She's like, I don't really have that kind of money. And also, I don't think I've done anything wrong to deserve excommunication. Uh, the summoner's like, hmm, well, I'm pretty sure you cheated on your husband. And that's another charge. So I'm going to take your frying pan as payment. Yeah, out of the frying pan. You not got a frying pan. <laughs> That's the saying goes. What are you gonna do about it? So he's this guy. This asshole's trying to take her frying pan on this trumped up charge, and the widow's like, "Hey, buddy, get fucked." In reality, she says, "Quote: I never cuckolded my poor old man, and as for you and for your frying pan, the hairiest, blackest devil out of hell carry you off and take the pan as well." Do demons have hair? Then? Uh, yeah, they're like Allison's butthole. Okay, cool. Do you ever heard that, you know, Harry is a demon or Allison's butthole? Yeah. <laughs> this, is so, this is Chaucer is bringing out the worst of I me. like all this stuff. Yeah. I know you do. So, this old lady has just offered the devil the summoner. And the demon is like, you know what? She offered you up to me sincerely. She really meant that. So, afraid I'm going to have to take you down to hell now. And the frying pan is coming with. And honestly, Daniel, everything about this works for me comedically. 10 out of 10, comedy revenge. This lady has great, if unintentional, timing. No notes. And the summoner was tortured forever after, and I, the old woman, I guess, never fried an egg again. So, sad ending. Now, Daniel, we still have several stories to go. What? We're not gonna... We're not gonna make it. I don't think we're going to make it. The The sand is almost out of the hourglass here, friend. Brain so of evil. I like that. This is a Save Me From My Shell first. <clears throat> we are going to do a second episode finishing this up. Whoa. Some, some might say that was pretty lazy of us. Some might say. Yeah. <laughs> I might say. But it's the middle of term and y'all are just going to have to deal. Yeah, it's a long book. So we will catch up with you guys in two weeks' time, poor Justine will be sitting here on the phone this entire time, waiting for us to come back, and we will do the remainder of these stories and our analysis, casting, Goodreads, and all of that, and our clue to the proper next episode. Wow, so that's wild. It yeah. is wild. Yeah. So thank you for bearing with us and your patience. This term is a lot, and this book is a lot. So we will see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not... I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you. <laughs>